Of course, we've been in Genesis this past year, and we've taken a little break here for four weeks to look at a series we're calling Jesus the Son, and how we've been looking at this idea that Jesus as the son of Adam, the son of Abraham, and today the son of David, and on Christmas Eve, the son of Mary, all of this is sort of culminating in this idea that Jesus is going to be revealed as the son of God. And of course, you know, being in Genesis, we've done a genealogy or two, and you're probably thinking this morning, oh, Pastor Paul, what are you thinking? Back to another genealogy. What does this have to do with tinsel and holly and mistletoe? And you'll be glad to hear absolutely nothing at all, okay? But it has other important things to do with us. You may have seen the commercial recently, and it's a close-up of a a woman's face. They're in a boardroom, and there's all these high-powered execs, and they're getting to they're getting ready to announce a promotion. And it zeroes in on this one woman's face who has all this anticipation. She's smiling. She's anticipating that she is going to be the one to receive the promotion. And there's a voiceover. The guy comes on the screen. He says, you know, it was a tough call, but this promotion to senior vice president goes to Mike. And obviously she's not Mike. And her face is crestfallen. And of course, time, timing is everything. And of course, she receives a notification on her phone right then, because it's a commercial, right? Notification right then that she has received a request for an interview for another job, and she kind of smiles, and, and it, the camera breaks. It's really a, it's a commercial for a website called Indeed. It's a place where you can post your resume to be noticed, to find jobs. And it's a reminder for us about the power of credentials in our culture, right? Where we come from, who we are, what we've accomplished. Now, if it's important for us, it was super important for the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago. Obviously, with no social media, no internet, no kinds of, of modern technology, letters of recommendation were a huge deal. See, where, where people didn't know you from Adam, literally, that piece of paper you carried in your pocket that says, I attest to the character of so-and-so, and they have done this, and they have done that, that was hugely important. Remember even in the Apostle Paul's ministry where he was ministering in the church in Corinth, he had gone away and these super apostles had come in to take his place and they, and they stake their claim on the fact that they had these letters of recommendation. And do you remember what Paul did? He wrote to them and said, you want a letter of recommendation? He said, I've got your letter of recommendation, <laughs> okay? You're my letter of recommendation. I lived with you for three years. You know me. You've seen my work. You've seen my heart. You've seen my character, You see, for the Jewish people, the Israelites particularly, heritage, genealogy, and lineage were a huge deal for a couple of reasons. One, it was important for a Jew to be able to establish their lineage to know what tribe they came from. Because if you didn't know what tribe you came from, you didn't know where you were supposed to live geographically in Israel. And if you didn't know where you were supposed to live, you didn't know what your role was. Am I, am I a farm? Am I a priest? Am I to serve in this way? Am I to serve in that way? And that's why in the Old Testament we see all of these genealogies. It was crucial that everyone be able to know who they were, where they come from, in order to know where they were going. But it was particularly important for the Israelites, though, this idea of lineage and genealogy, to know who was supposed to be king. See, God had 
promised to rule through a king. And what we've been seeing in the book of Genesis is that that it's been prepping the ground. So, so God made a promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless all the world through your seed, Abraham. But it's as we march through the Old Testament, we realize that this isn't just any son, any Messiah, any Savior. This is going to be a king. This Messiah is going to, a Savior is going to be a king who's going to reign in the line of David. And we see God making this promise to David in 2 Samuel. Let me read that for us. He says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Isn't it interesting at Pentecost, just after Jesus rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and Peter is preaching to the thousands of Israelites who were gathered there on the Temple Mount, and what does he say? He says, Israel, your king has come. And he proceeds to preach a passage from Amos, which is all about the prediction of the fact that a king is going to come from the line of David. And, And Peter's rallying cry is, Jesus is this king. In fact, we know from the early church... This was a central part of their pronouncement of their creed that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now you can imagine, particularly for Jews living at that time, the time that Matthew was writing his gospel, this evoked tons of questions like, King, who who says so, Matthew, church, on whose basis, on whose authority, prove it to us. We need some letters of authenticity. And it's into this milieu, this context, that Matthew lays out for us the pedigree, the resume of Jesus to be king. In fact, we see this beginning right off the top in verse 1. Look at verse 1. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. In fact... Matthew's entire book is set out to prove that. He begins with this genealogy. He ends with the resurrection and the commissioning of King Jesus. All of it is meant to communicate Jesus Christ is king. Now, here's something pertinent for us here at Advent. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is never content merely to be king confessionally. And here's what I mean by that. He's not content to be king merely by word or by affirmation or by nod or assent or singing a song or lighting a candle or coming to Christmas Eve service or doing the whole holiday thing. That's religion. And religion may or may not be accompanied by true saving faith. Jesus says you can confess with your mouth But here is what I'm really after this morning, Four Oaks. He says, I want your heart. I don't want just to be your king confessionally. I want to be your king functionally. I want your life, your heart, your soul. You see, Four Oaks, one day Jesus Christ is going to return. 
every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And I believe God wants us through Matthew to be awakened to that reality, to remember that, to rehearse it to our own hearts, rehearse it to our kids, rehearse it to ourselves. So two things about this particular genealogy we're going to look at, just two, all right? And here they are. Number one, we're going to look at God's faithfulness. And number two, we're going to look at God's grace. So the faithfulness of God, the grace of God. God's faithfulness first. I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, went to First Presbyterian Church, Chattanooga, where we did the the famous Bible sword drills, and it shouldn't shock you to know that I totally dominated those competitions, right? Actually, I didn't. But nonetheless, one of the things I did love to do was to recite all the books of the Bible. And I particularly loved coming to the Old Testament, okay? Because the Old Testament, the way our English Bible is ordered, ends with the minor prophets. And, I, and there's a certain rhythm or cadence or rhyming to it, right? So Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and this is my favorite part, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. We love to put the East Tennessee into that a little bit. You get what I'm saying? However, as I was to discover later, This is probably not the order of the Old Testament books as they were originally given to the nation of Israel. Remember, we of course believe all the books of the Bible are inspired, Old Testament included, but the ordering of them, that happens in different ways at different times in different eras of the church. We think most likely that the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament as the Jews were coming back from exile, was in fact the book of Chronicles. And it wasn't two books like we see it now. That was divided at a later time to make it easier to reference, but in fact was one book. And, and why this is important is that if you, if you read the book of Chronicles, you'll note that it is full of genealogies. In fact, if you've come to Chronicles and, and on your annual Bible reading plan has sort of gotten stuck... Okay, and sort of kind of gotten moved past that. Don't do that. Okay, we're going to find out why this morning. You, you, you probably have noticed this. And there's all sorts of genealogies, genealogies of the land and of tribes and of, and of kings. But the book of Chronicles, as the last book in the Old Testament, actually ends in a pretty ominous way on an ominous note. It tells us in the last chapter of Chronicles that Jeconiah who was the last rightful king in Israel, was deposed. He was was shipped off to Babylon, never to be heard from again. And as a Jew, you're you're reading this, and you're wondering, well, well, what happens? I mean, I know it says Jeconiah had some children, but it's like his line dies out. It fades. We never hear from it again. And isn't it interesting in verse 12, look there with me, that Matthew picks up the genealogy of Jesus from that very point. It's almost as if he's saying, and anticipating, which I think he is, you haven't heard from God in 400 years. You think God has abandoned you. You think God has not been faithful to his promises. You think that the line of the king has died out. You think that you're under the yoke of these Roman oppressors forever. But I want to, be remi- I want to remind you of something. And look at verse 12. He says, And after the deportation to Babylon, 
Jeconiah was the father of Shildan. I won't read all the names because they did that for me, okay? That was, that was awfully kind of them. What is Matthew saying? He's saying, unbeknownst to all of you, remember he's writing primarily to Jews, the line really hasn't died after all. God has been faithful in preserving the line of his king. Now I'm looking out here this morning, I see a lot of, a lot of Lord of the Ring nerds, okay? I, just, I can intuit you, you intuit me. We intuit each other, right? And Tolkien had tons of Christian themes, but they were much more subtle in his writings compared to someone like C.S. Lewis, who was much more allegorical. But this is a prominent theme in Tolkien's writings, if you can look at it. Because the first time we meet Strider, he's in the, the inn, he's this shadow-hooded figure, the hobbits are asking who this man is, and no one really knows. He's a ranger. What do they say? A ranger from the north, right? He kind of appears out of nowhere. He's a shadowy figure. No one knows where he comes from. No one knows where he's going. But gradually, over the course of, that, of those three books, what do you learn? That Strider is not just anybody. Strider is a man with a lineage. Strider is a man with an ancestry. Strider has a father named Arathorn. Strider's real name is Aragorn. In fact, Strider is the great descendant of the kings of Gondor. And while he's been living in obscurity, while that line has been living in obscurity, they have not been passive. They have not been quiet. They have not been silent. Actively behind the scenes, he's been preparing what? For his return. And this is exactly the picture that Matthew presents for us this morning. Now, something to note about this genealogy that's different than the genealogy we find in Luke. Now, remember in the Gospel of Luke, Luke also has a genealogy of Jesus that's similar but different from this one. Because we find out in that genealogy, Luke is actually tracing Jesus' line down through his mother, Mary. He, it's, his, it's his biological line. But here, G, Matthew is tracing Jesus' line through Joseph, who, while he is Jesus' legal father, is not his biological father. Look down in verse 16. makes this really clear. And it says, And Mathon, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, listen, the father of Joseph, not the father of Jesus, right? The husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. See, Jesus had to have a biological link in order to be considered fully human, which he was through his mom. But in terms of the way kingships worked, he also had to have a legal claim on the throne. And let me explain that. In the ancient Near East, it was not always, in, in fact, often what the times was not, was the direct descendant of a, of a throne, the son, the first son of the previous serving king. That's not always the way it worked. It wasn't always a biological reality. Sometimes it was a legal reality. So if you, if you remember in, in, in the movie Gladiator when Marcus Aurelius the Caesar, it's time, he's about to die, and he wants to appoint his successor. But he doesn't hand the torch off to Commodus, right, his son, because why? Commodus is kind of a, a mean guy, and mean guys stink, right? He's, he's, not, he's, not, a, he's not, a, not a good guy. He's like, instead, I'm going to give my torch to Maximus, right? 
Because why? Because he's like a son. He's faithful. He's obedient. He's got great character. I can trust him. And that's oftentimes the way lineages would work legally for kings in the ancient Near East. So do you see what Matthew's doing? See, he's, he's saying Jesus is the legal heir of Joseph. He can trace his line all the way back to the kings. In fact, even further than that, to David and to Abraham. He is here by divine appointment. And what Matthew is going to speak going to spend the rest of his book doing is he's going to prove it he's going to say we're going to start here i'm going to show you how he's the right ancestral king to the line of david and i'm going to show you through the rest of the book how that's true how he heals and how he teaches and how he dies and how he raises the dead and how he is the coming king you know advent is a time is it not where we celebrate the idea that jesus is king that he's reigning, that he's even right now putting everything in subjection under his feet. He is slowly but surely in the process of bringing everything in this world and this life under his rule and under his reign, and we celebrate that. But, but we also, and you could even hear it, could you not, in the songs we sang this morning, we're, it's also a time of lament, because we're, we're thinking about not just the fact that Jesus is reigning, we're thinking about all the ways where we don't see his reign fully yet, right? We, we, we look at our world, we look at our nations, we look at our political system, and we say, the Lord's reign is not, is not, is not full there. We look at our relationships, our marriages, our finances, our vocations. We see broken places Things that are not the way they should be. And we pray, God, come reign. Jesus, be king of this area. Be king. I, I, I want to see your power and authority. And you bring sin and suffering under subjection. We see it in our bodies, don't we? Where we're longing for a time in the future when we will suffer no more. When there will be no more disease and no more death. Advent is about reminding ourselves of the things yet still left undone places in fact that are resisting the reign of christ let me ask you a question this morning where do you need to be reminded of that certainty where do you look in your life and see the things undone and the things incomplete and the things yet not being subjected to the full reign and rule of Christ and you are tempted to give up hope? You are tempted to despair. You are tempted to grow weary. You are tempted to, 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 to cash it in, to, to, to put it aside, to grab hold of what you can see, taste, touch, and put your hands around. Where do you need to be reminded this morning of the certainty of the kingship of Jesus? Because if you are trusting in Jesus as your king, if you are a part of his kingdom, Jesus says, I'm not done. You might be tempted to think sometimes that I am done. I'm not done. I, I've, I've only just begun. I'm ruling and reigning, and I will continue to rule and reign. And one day, one day, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to set everything right. Faith will be sight. My reign will be visible. My reign will be absolute. 
every knee, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Advent is for remembering that reality. So one thing we see in this text is God's faithfulness. The second thing we see, and this will be our last thing, we see God's grace. Now, when you put together a resume, and I'm looking out over the the audience here this morning, I know a number of you have recently gone through job searches, and that's about as fun as like putting, you know, sharp sticks into your eyeballs, right? You're, 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 you're tidying up your resume and you're, you're sending it out and you're hoping somebody bites on it. And, and you know this from putting together a resume, right? Is that, or, or, or some of you I see who have applied for jobs, high school students. You know, you don't put everything you could put on an application, right? Or you shouldn't, right? What, what you don't put on a resume is oftentimes just as important as what you do put on it. You probably don't want to put your arrest record, right? Your, your history of failings, all the low points in your life thus far, all the ways that you've been entrusted responsibility but have failed miserably. You don't want to put your college Twitter feed on your resume, most likely. See, we, we, we get that. We want to put our best foot forward. That's what a resume's for. But here, Matthew does something entirely radical, and in, in pointing out three things about this particular genealogy, I want to highlight four names on this, on this lineage for you, and I want to make some comments about them to show you how unusual what Matthew does here is and then why. So the, so the four names I want to point out to you are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and then the wife of Uriah, which we, of course, know as Bathsheba. And there's three things I want to note about this, and I'm going to tell you why it's amazingly radical for a genealogy like this. Number one is obviously the issue of gender. See, in the ancient Near East, the reason that men dominated the genealogies is because men had the power. Men had the authority. Men had the ability to see things through. See, so, so oftentimes in our, in our culture, particularly now, it's about what you've done or your character. But in that culture, it was really, really super important. People might want to know a little bit about your mother, okay? But what do they really want to know? Who's your daddy, right? That's what they really wanted to know. Because that determined who you were and how far you could go and how much you could make and what you could accomplish. Now, it wasn't that women never appeared on genealogies, it's just that if they did appear, it was for some, it was some sort of Joan of Arc moment, right? Some astounding feat. But here we have four women who seemingly are minor bit players in the whole thing. And so we just want to bookmark that for a second and just note that that's odd, okay? That's different. A second thing to note about this genealogy and these four women in particular is the issue of ethnicity. Now, remember, in, with, when, with Israelites, establishing yourself as a pure blood was crucial. See, Gentiles frowned upon, even when they were accepted. I mean, think about in the book of Galatians, where uh, Peter was castigated for, uh, by Paul for the fact that he would not eat with the Gentiles. Gentiles were always second-class citizens. But here we have, interestingly enough, just this hodgepodge 
of ethnicity. So, so think about this, Rahab. Who was Rahab? Rahab was a Canaanite. She lived in Jericho. She helped the spies when they came to spy out the land. But she was part of that people that God said is so wicked, is so destitute, I'm going to give them 400 years to repent while my people are in Egypt. And if they haven't repented, I'm going to destroy them. And in fact, he did. And that's who Rahab was. Those were her people. We think about Ruth. Now, I didn't really want to preach on this a couple weeks ago, so I gave it to Scott to preach, and he did a great job. But remember, Ruth was a Moabite. And Moabites, they came from the wrong side of the tracks. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Lot ended up impregnating in a drunken stupor his two daughters. That's who the Moabites were. That's where they were descended. They were hated by the Israelites, detested. They were an embarrassment. They were like the next door neighbor they were ashamed of. And they told visitors, don't look that way, right? Don't look that way. That was the Moabites. That was Ruth. Bathsheba. Remember, she was married to Uriah, who was what? A Hittite. Another one of those blasted, dreaded enemies of Israel dwelling in the land. And most likely, certainly, Bathsheba herself could have been a Hittite. So, so again, what do we want to say about that? Right now, we just want to say that's odd. So this issue of gender is odd. This issue of ethnicity is odd. But by far, the biggest scandal of this genealogy deals with morality. Let's rehearse this just for a second, shall we? Tamar, and we're going to get there in Genesis chapter 38, probably by 2030, we'll, we'll be there, right? But Tamar was the father-in-law, or I'm sorry, Tamar's father-in-law was Judah. And Judah's sons had died, and Judah was not providing for his daughter-in-law, and so she pretended to be a prostitute, seduced him, and here we find her in the genealogy. Rahab, oh, she was a Canaanite, but I forgot to mention to you, what was her occupation? She was a prostitute. And of course, the Israelites hid themselves with her because no one would think to look where the prostitute is. And then, of course, we see in the text the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. Now, some have said, well, the reason that Matthew doesn't mention Bathsheba's name is that she's a woman of ill repute. She's, she brings too much shame. No, no, I think it's actually the opposite. And Tim Keller notes this, that in fact, by not mentioning her name, but instead mentioning David's name, what is Matthew doing? He's putting the spotlight on the greatest failure of David's life. Here David is the anointed, he's the king, he is the ancestor to the appointed Messiah, but what did David do? You know the story probably. He seduced a woman, probably coerced her. He sent her husband to the front lines to be killed because he had impregnated this man's wife. And here Matthew takes this opportunity to spotlight in the genealogy of Jesus the most, probably the most notorious of sins by one of God's people in all the Old Testament. What's the point of all this? That's what we want to ask and answer. I think it goes something like this. Matthew seems to be saying, 
the way for Oaks to be connected to this king, the way to be connected to, to his kingdom is not through your pedigree. It's not by your great accomplishments. It's not by your moral fortitude. It's not about your ethnicity or your background or who you know or where you've come from. None of these things qualifies you to be a part of the kingdom of Christ. None of these attach you to Christ the King. Instead, the way you become a part of this kingdom, the way that this king becomes your king is by grace. See, no one is disqualified because of their background. No one is shunned because of their great mistakes. And you may say, Pastor Paul, you just don't know where I've been this morning. I've done things that, that make David seem like a saint. I've, I've, I'm experiencing incredible shame, incredible guilt, particularly in this season when I think about the wasted years and the wasted opportunities and the places I've been and the things that I've done. Surely, surely, this is not for me. And as if Matthew was saying, no one is disqualified. All are welcome to the party. The gate is wide open. If it can be wide open for them, of course, of course, Four Oaks, it can be wide open for you and for me. And we have to say, but Pastor Paul, what, what's the catch? What, what's the fine print? What's, there's no catch. Just a blessed condition. The blessed condition is this, that you and I simply receive Jesus as our king. See, Jesus is, is not your fishing buddy. He's not your co-pilot. He's not your traveling companion. He's not your good luck charm that you break out three or four times a year when there's some sort of crisis. He's not your seasonal good luck charm that you break out strategically at different points and times of the year. No, no, that's not a king. That's a pet. Jesus says, I am king of kings and lord of lords. And if you simply receive me as yours, then I am yours and yours is mine. And we are together. We are one. You are a citizen in my kingdom with all the rights and privileges and authority they're derived from. Now here is the, what's the most amazing thing of all about this. And Matthew is going to show us this later in his gospel. Typically, in most cultures, if you want to be a part of the kingdom of a king or in his court or part of his entourage, then you have to have in some way proved yourself worthy, right? Proved yourself loyal, have astounding character, showed your commitment to the king above all else. But here's the amazing news of the gospel for Oaks. Jesus, while coming as a king stepped off his throne, took off his crown, born in a major, died on Calvary's hill to make a way for us to know him, those of us who were not worthy, all of us. Knowing that there was nothing that we could do to earn entrance into the inner sanctum of the king, Jesus himself died to make a way for us to know him as our king. This is extraordinary. This is revolutionary. 
This is not the way kings act. This is not the way kings behave. But this is Jesus the King come for you and me. See, Jesus the King reveals himself in this Advent season as Jesus the Savior. Do you know him? There's no more important issue to contend with in our life. Is Jesus not just confessionally the King of kings and Lord of lords for us, but is he someone that we have entrusted ourselves to? See, when we come to the table this morning, what are are we saying? We're saying, this is my oath that I am taking, my public oath I am taking, and I am identifying myself with the king. I, he has invited me to dine at his table, and I'm feasting at his table, and I'm receiving all the blessings that come from being a part of his kingdom. And I am saying today, yes, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are my king. Folks, where do you need to be reminded this season, this Advent season, that Jesus is still king, that he is still reigning, but that he will come back one day to make everything right and everything new. Everything wrong, everything that's wrong that is now everything that is right. Let's pray. Lord